1: In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
3: Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Greta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and part of the ANU Medical School, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow here at ANU, and I'm here today with Sharon Bessel.
2: Hi, Sharon. Hi, Anna Greta. It's good to be here and and it's an exciting episode today. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and I head up the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and also the Children's Policy Centre.
3: Excellent. It's great to be back in the studio with the team again. This week, we're back with episode three of our Wellbeing Economy mini-series as part of the Policy Forum pod, exploring ways in which economics have created the problems for our world and the ways in which economics, particularly new ways of thinking about the economy, might bring us some solutions. But before we get the new podcast underway, I should remind you that Policy Forum pod is produced by policyforum.net, which is part of the Crawford School of Public Policy, And at the Crawford School of Public Policy is, of course, Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. I would highly recommend those listeners to check out the degree program here at Crawford and the short courses, and you can do that through the website, crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. I also recommend uh, people joining up with the Policy Forum pod through
2: Facebook and obviously following us on Twitter. So last week we had a fantastic discussion with Professor Mark Howden and Tim Hollow about how we might use economics to tackle climate change and what broader societal and cultural changes are needed to move to a genuinely post-carbon economy. So if you haven't listened to that pod yet – do catch up on it. It really was a terrific discussion. I think both Anna Greta and I came away from that really buzzing with ideas.
3: Yeah, look, I've actually listened to that again, and I'm not so good at listening to myself on on, uh, podcasts, but that that was a really amazing
2: conversation. That one really is worth a listen. And today, I think we're about to have another amazing conversation. We're going to continue looking at Reimagining Society and the changing role of economics in this process. This time, we're going to be focusing on the idea of basic income. From Finland to Kenya, there have been numerous studies around the world and several real-world trials of a universal basic income. But so far, no country in the world has permanently implemented the policy. But the COVID-19 crisis has painfully exposed the limits of welfare systems around the globe and has given a fresh impetus to discussions around basic income. With more and more people finding themselves in insecure employment and women still carrying the bulk of unpaid work, the need for a more permanent solution to these issues has never been more pressing. And so today we want to ask, what might be the benefits of basic income? And what would policy settings need to look like in order to make such a scheme successful? We are absolutely delighted to have with us today Guy Standing, who is Professorial Research Associate at SOAS at the University of London. Guy is a founding member and honorary co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network, a non-government organisation that promotes basic income for all. Guy, we are delighted to have you with us. Welcome.
1: It's nice to be back, if only virtually. I'd love to be there with you today.
2: Oh, it's really great to have you
3: uh, join our conversation Uh, and we're really looking forward to today's chat. It's amazing how often uh, basic income has come up already in our podcast so far. So it's really important, I think, that we flesh this out today and it's great to have such expertise in the room. Guy, you've written widely on the importance of basic income. You're a founding member of the Basic Income Earth Network, and basic income is a concept that's been raised several times on this series, where we're looking at how we can reimagine society and the role of economics with that reimagining. Could we start today, perhaps, with a definition? What is a basic income?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's a good point to start, obviously. I mean, I've been advocating basic income for over 30 years, and it's an idea that's gradually crystallized in the course of those years, and a lot of people are now interested for, for reasons you've mentioned. The idea of a basic income is that everybody in society individually should receive a modest monthly amount paid without conditions, um, paid without means tests, without a regard to work status or marital status or household status. And, and basically, it, it's uh, a right, an economic right. And it goes back to, in my view, and I've, I've argued this in my books, it goes back actually a long, long way to 1217, is the origin of it, in my view. The Charter of the Forest, which was uh, sealed alongside the Magna Carta in November, in fact, 803 years ago, was basically saying everybody, in society has a right to subsistence, a right to be able to live in the commons with dignity. And I think that's the origin of it. It is a matter of saying, look, the income and wealth of all of us is far more to do with the efforts of the generations that went before us than anything we do ourselves. And if we allow for the private inheritance of private wealth, why don't we allow for the public inheritance of public wealth? And that justifies the idea of a sort of social dividend to give people uh, basic security. And I think that that's that fundamental ethical rationale is key to understanding basic income and its appeal today.
2: Guy, you mentioned there the idea of dignity and allowing people to, to live in dignity. And I just wanted to pick up on that for a moment. You've argued that basic income is a principled reversal of the trend towards means testing, behavioural testing and sanctions. And in the UK, there's been a great deal of critique of universal credit and the quite terrible impact on many people, particularly those living in poverty, and the way that has stripped away their dignity. In Australia, we have what is referred to as as robo-debt, where people receiving benefits have been assessed based on an algorithm as having incurred a debt, often inaccurately, and sometimes this has led to absolutely tragic consequences, including suicide, and these are genuinely deaths of despair. Just this week, the illegality of the Australian government's approach has been demonstrated through a $1.2 billion out-of-court settlement. Thinking about human dignity and the way we, we treat people as societies, I guess the question I'd really like to to ask you is: How did we get to this point where individuals and families are not only blamed, but as you say, sanctioned and often punished for needing assistance?
1: Well, that's a very big question. Um, it goes back actually to big debates that took place in the nineteen eighties, and I, and I wrote a an article uh, at that time saying. Look, we've got a neoliberal economics that's coming in that believes in free markets and flexible labor markets, and that is going to generate increasing inequality and insecurity in labor markets. And it erodes the principles of the welfare state as it had been developed in the post-war era. And I- I predicted at that time in that article that there would be a shift to means testing away from social insurance and national insurance, and means testing would lead inevitably to workfare. And what I meant by that was that if you go for a policy which says, we are going to concentrate on giving benefits only for the poor to the poor. And target the poor, you inevitably erode the broad appeal of welfare, of social benefits. And you create a ridiculous problem of poverty traps. Because what you do is you say, well, if you're only giving it to the poor, then if somebody makes an effort to become non poor, they lose their entitlement. To benefits and therefore have no incentives to take a, a low-wage job. And that is, that is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. So you create moral hazards. That means people won't do what they would otherwise like to do, and immoral hazards because people will go into the black economy and pretend they're not earning something and therefore not declare it and risk becoming criminalized uh, or being sanctioned or whatever and i said that inevitably that policy of means testing would lead to governments introducing more and more behavioral control policies more and more coercion more and more punishments and to forcing people to take low-wage jobs in one way or the other workfare and that's of course exactly what's happened but the the problem is actually worsened because if you have means testing and you have a flexible labor market you have the growth of the precariat as has been part of my main work over the last 20 years and my books on the precariat we may come back to but you also create what i've called a precarity trap because if you think about it if you're a low-waged person You lose your job and you're part of the precariat, so you can only anticipate getting short-term jobs, part-time jobs, low-wage, insecure jobs. Uh, You have to wait around before you get your benefits. Even if you qualify, you have to fill in forms, you have to queue, you have to be checked up and all of that stuff. And it often takes many weeks before somebody actually starts receiving their benefits, their means-tested benefits. And at that point, supposing the, the employment exchange or whatever it might be called the, tells the person, we have found a part-time job, the other side of Canberra, paying pretty low wage. It may not last very long, but you've got to take it. Well, you'd be an idiot to take that job because you could very soon be out of employment again, and have to go back into the queue and start filling in forms and start trying to claim benefits again and therefore not have any income at all for a while and that intensifies the poverty trap so you've got a situation now where governments and yours particularly but it's certainly not the only one are increasingly having to act as policemen for the the very vulnerable groups and this is not only undignifying it's humiliating it's punitive increases inequality in the labor market and has has re- induced many of the phenomenon which i've been writing about in, in a recently published book which is making the whole morass of the the lower end of the labor market into a a, a vicious place where suicides are rising rising morbidity Rising social resentment uh, is quite quite understandable. Quite honestly, if you or I were in those circumstances today, we would be we would be in the same state of mind. So it it's it's a really the end of the road for that that particular route that was taken in neoliberal times. And I think we 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 got to the point where it must be replaced and you you mentioned britain but britain's with the universal credit is is resulting in hundreds of thousands of people being punished for the little minor things but the punishment is totally disproportionate to missing an interview or something like that so it it's really a vicious area at the moment.
3: Mm, absolutely, and you know the effects in terms of the, the in- impacts on health and well being are, are really quite profound. Um, and again, a theme that's I think running through the conversations that we're having. Let's unpack some of the reasons that you see the basic income as a way forward. Can we p- perhaps start by talking about care? Uh, again, something that's come up and was part of the trigger for us this conversation. Currently, unpaid care work, which is overwhelmingly done, as you know, by women, um, it's generally regarded as not having any economic value and its social value is often under Paid care work, uh, particularly young children of the elderly, of those with a disability, is often low-paid and poorly valued. What would basic income do for this problem, uh, to attitudes towards care and for the value of care?
1: Well, I've argued for many, many years that... We need to reconceptualize re- what we mean by work and overhaul our work statistics, so called work statistics, because they're just unfit for purpose. You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the crazy situation has been known for over a century. Actually, in 1922, a Cambridge economist, Arthur Pigu, said that if he hires uh, a woman as his housekeeper national income goes up employment goes up and economic growth goes up if he marries her and she continues to do precisely the same work national income goes down employment goes down and economic growth goes down well this is totally absurd it's sexist it's uh, patronizing and it's about time we, we thoroughly overhauled our statistics to reveal the extent of work mostly done by women and unprotected, unremunerated, uh, and leaving people extremely vulnerable. And I think one of the things that we've been learning in this pandemic is just how valuable and uh, necessary that we all do care we all spend more time caring for others caring for our community caring for ourselves as much as 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 possible but but the sense of care as being an essential activity has suddenly come to the fore it's ridiculous that it's taken this long and it's taken a pandemic to make more people sit up and, and talk about it in this way but i've always argued that that a basic income would enable people to spend more time doing unpaid, uh, unwaged activities relative to doing what are often very boring uh, bullshit jobs. And I think that this is a message that more and more people uh, are coming to accept and, and realize is part of the argument uh, for basic income. But I, I think to go back to the, the big issue, if I may, at the moment, um, I wrote a little book, which has just come out, uh, came out in March, as it happens, just as the pandemic was, was beginning. And the essence of the book was, I went back to William Beveridge's famous uh, report for the British government of 1942. And this was a very key moment, and it was the last transformational moment before we have today, when basically Beveridge said, all our social policies have broken down and inequalities have been increased before the war. And there, after the war, we can't go back to what existed before, and He said he was hardly a revolutionary type himself. He was a very boring uh, Edwardian, really. And he said, this is a time for revolutions, not patching. What he meant was that we needed a, a profound reorientation, a transformation of social policy and the way we live and he said in the next paragraph and I I've, I've got the original of the 1942 report and it's it's a wonderful old document he said we have a challenge to slay five giants and the giants he identified as disease ignorance idleness squalor and want basically the classic uh indicators of poverty. And when I reread Beveridge's report, thinking of where we are today or where we were last year, I said that essentially the global economy has created a very fragile economic system in which we are in permanent economic crisis. And it will only take one little setback, which will tip the whole economic system into major crisis. That was the argument of the book. And I said that we today are confronted by eight giants, eight modern giants that are preventing us building a good society, a great society. And the eight giants that I identified in in the book are, first of all, inequality, which is grotesquely large by historical standards all over the world, and it has a particular character, this inequality, which is that it's part of rentier capitalism, by which I mean that more and more of the income, be it in Australia or all over the world, more and more of the income is going to the owners or possessors of property, financial property, physical property, or intellectual property. And less and less is going to those who rely on labor, on work. Wages are falling, stagnating, or much more uncertain and volatile. And this inequality is transmitted through Wealth inequality being much greater than income inequality. Many people concentrate on income inequality. They should concentrate more on wealth inequality, which is much, much greater than income inequality. And more and more of the the wealth is inherited. So this is the first giant. We need to do something about that because at the moment, governments are not. The second giant is related and it's insecurity. We have chronic insecurity. Partly because of our labour markets, part of the because the way rentier capitalism has developed, millions and millions of people all over the world feel chronically insecure and part of the precariat. And I, I my books on the precariat have been translated into twenty four languages, and so I get emails from all over the world in many languages uh, saying that they are part, people are part of the precariat, and they're insecure. The third giant is is debt. We have chronically high private debt. If you are in the precariat, you feel uh, one little accident and you're going to be out in the streets. You're on the edge of unsustainable debt. And the fourth, the fourth giant is well-known right across the world, and it's stress. We have a pandemic of stress before the pandemic of COVID. And this is re- resulting in rising rates of morbidity, rising rates of cardiac problems, diabetes, uh, blood pressure, suicidal tendencies, and so on. The fifth giant, and I'm being very brief to give you the overall picture, the fifth giant is precarity itself. The feeling that people are losing the rights of citizenship, the feeling that they have to be supplicants. They have to ask for favors. They have to rely on discretionary um, judgments by bureaucrats or parents or employers or landlords or whatever. The sixth giant is, of course, the threat of the robots, the threat of automation. I happen to be in favor of automation. I think it would be great if a lot of terrible jobs were automated out of existence uh, because the people having to do them are being demeaned and, and humiliated in having to do them. The, the seventh giant, to me, was the one that I've identified as the one that will make basic income uh, essential because basic income could help reduce inequality, reduce in- security, and re- reduce stress, reduce debt. But I think the most important reason why basic income will become the go-to policy it's not a panacea, but it's got to be part of a progressive agenda for this new society, is the threat of extinction. The ecological crisis requires high carbon taxes. It requires a different way of organizing production, less emphasis on economic growth, more emphasis on living well, slowing down. And I think the young in particular, realize that we've got a major crisis in the ecological threat of extinction, and we need carbon taxes. There's one problem with carbon taxes, which is that it increases inequality. They are regressive. And therefore, the only way to make them politically acceptable is to say that the revenue from carbon taxes will be recycled in the form of basic income, because then it becomes progressive. It reduces inequality and makes carbon taxes uh, popular. We have them in in Switzerland uh, in a very small way, but it's made, made carbon taxes actually quite, quite popular. And the eighth giant is the one that I identified in my book in 2011, is the threat of neo-fascist populists. And I predicted on page one of the precariat that that a political monster would arise, that that was the exact word I used, unless the precariat's problems were were addressed as a matter of urgency. They haven't been addressed. And we saw in 2016 that monster arriving uh, in the name of Donald Trump. And uh, in November 2016, I received a huge number of emails from people who'd read the book, said, your monster has arrived. So we have these eight giants. And I think what we are now looking for is a new set of policies that recalibrates what sort of society we want to see emerge after this pandemic. I, I did a video with massive attack uh, recently where I say, basically we've got the ninth giant. In this pandemic and it's the point in which we're realizing that society and us as individuals lack a sense of resilience we lack resilience and unless we have resilience for everybody we'll have repeats of this pandemic in different forms and that is a terrifying prospect this is already the sixth pandemic of the 21st century. So we're, and we're only in 2020. So we need to relook at our politics. And I think that the respite that we've got with the election of Biden instead of Trump is only a temporary reprieve. The fear I have today talking to you is that the announcement of two or even three vaccines on the horizon for COVID will lead back to a a business as usual type of mentality. Let's go back to yesterday. Let's put everything back. Let's go back that V curve and stimulate economic growth. But in actual fact, what we need is a, a, a profound transformation in the way we organize society. And I think the young in the precariat understand that. They don't want to go back to the old laborist model. That's why social democrat and labor parties are not doing very well, even despite the huge crisis that neoliberalism has produced. So I, I'm I'm actually excited at the moment, but I think it's going to be up to the new younger generation of people who are now students, people who've just come out of university, to be bold and courageous and taking us into uncharted territories. And that, that is very exciting. We need revolutions, not no, patching. No, no. It's I a don't really think, great line. I don't think we can use the word, <laughs> word revolution. I, I, I've advised against that. Certainly revolt. Certainly <laughs> revolt. Revolt. And, okay. And, revolt, not you patching. Know, the trouble with the word revolution is it's tainted by history and and. It has too many uh, messages. I think we need a transformation, a new progressive mm. politics. I mean most people in the old laborist parties, including in Australia, I'm sorry to say uh, including britain, they're they're dead men walking because they are still preaching the old uh, mantra of full-time jobs, full-time employment, uh economic growth. They're not giving the priorities to the ecology, the way we live, different forms of work that aren't jobs, going back to that care uh, issue that we discussed earlier. And I think the the new precariat movements, which I've been in, asked to address all over the world, is extraordinary. It, I, I think they are holding out much greater hope. And at the moment, it's it's a very... Sensitive area, but I think new political movements are beginning to emerge.
2: Guy, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts about how we create political space for the kinds of transformations that you're talking about, um, and many of those issues that that you've raised, those eight giants, and and indeed the ninth giant of, of pandemic, uh, are about inequality, but they're also about intergenerational equality because so many of those issues, particularly ecological, environmental issues, but also the rise of neo-fascism, are going to impact on younger people and on emerging generations much more than they impact on current leaders. I think one of the really interesting things about the US election was that we saw two um, white men in their 70s by vying for power with very little space for young people and for new ideas to come through. So how do we create that political space for
1: transformation? I think that's obviously a huge question. And I think the energy out there uh, with green groups, with precariat groups, with social movements, um, with certain types of NGOs, I think there's a lot of uh, energy in different directions. I, I am concerned at the moment that the, as I said, just a moment ago, that the, the feeling might be, uh, missed that we need, we need profound change, not tinkering. And I, I, I believe that more and more people in the precariat are profoundly dissatisfied with the politics on offer. I, I I one of the worst aspects of this US presidential election that's just happened is that a man who's a despicable liar, has a terrifying record, he is a bully, he's a racist, he's a misogynist, his record with women is disgusting, etc. He managed to get 71 million votes. Now that, that, that shouldn't be happening. It's, it's a terrible indictment on the American education system, on, on the way that information is disseminated and the way that values have been, uh, you know, distorted. I, I, I I get really upset when you think that a majority of white women who voted voted for Trump. How on earth is this happening? without a sense of realizing that our education and our sense of culture has been withering. We need to revive a sense of general education, general leisure, what the Greeks called skole, a sense of deliberative, slowing down, valuing the time we have in a different way. We have to move away from the endless pursuit of more and more consumption, more and more labour. The precariat has to do an incredible amount of work that doesn't get counted, uh, but they have to do it. We have a, a sort of frenzy in our societies today, where you know there is too much moralistic stuff, too much utilitarianism, and we need to sit back and. And look at it in a, in a different way. It, you can be very pessimistic because you don't see clearly where, uh, the progressive agenda is going to come. But you can also be, uh, very positive and optimistic because I am convinced there's this tremendous energy and it is actually beginning to crystallize in in a new politics. And I suppose you have to go through a period where the old is dying and the the new is yet not yet ready to be born. To, to r- remind us of Gramsci's famous statement, and and I think we are in that in that period. Um, I hope it doesn't last very long because if, if it lasts too long, it will open space for a neo-fascist populism. Uh, to come back, to come in. Uh, we're seeing it in Europe a lot. It's it's terrifying. I spend much of my time, if, if I could, in, in Italy, uh, uh, where I have a small place and where I live. Uh, and Salvini represents the, the Trump of, of Italy. Boris Johnson and his caliber represent the far right. He's very disappointed that Trump's got beaten. And you have people like that, uh in many many parts of the world including your own of course and and i think that we are at, at an interregnum where we need a sense of transformation it could go either way it could go to authoritarianism and very nasty inequalities with surveillance uh, curbing the losers and so on or it could lead to a new uh renaissance of progressive thinking. And basic income is is part of uh, that progressive vision. And I, I have always said that we must see basic income as part of a package of reforms, where new forms of voice have to be developed. The old labor unions are not for the 21st century. They must transform themselves. But we need unions. We need Collective voice. It's just that they must change their tune and become vehicles for the precariat, vehicles for ecology, vehicles for slowing down. What is so precious about having as many people as possible in jobs? Jobs are, for most people, something you have to do because you need the income, but they're boring, they're demeaning, etc. Yes, we have to do labor. Yes, we need to do it. But let's make it attractive. Let's make the wages so attractive that people want to do that, but don't have jobs, jobs, jobs as the mentality. Jobs are instrumental, not something to be put on a pedestal. Um, I've never worked harder than since I stopped having a job. Uh, Many people will say the same. I work damn hard and I enjoy my work. And uh, I, I think that's what most people like to do. They, they want to work. They want to be creative. They want to develop themselves. They want to improve the income and uh, well-being of their families and, and their communities. But many forms of work, as we discussed earlier, are not captured by the notion of traditional jobs. And, and that is a basic realization that we need to, to recalibrate what we mean by work recalibrate the way we remunerate ourselves and change the income distribution system i said at the earlier that the the moment we our income distribution system of the 20th century the last century has broken down and it will not come back we know that rentier capitalism will mean that the owners of property will continue to gain more and more and those who rely on jobs and wages will continue to stagnate and be left out of growing affluence. This has been a reality for 30 years. It's not just to do with the pandemic, it's a globalization reality and it the realities are not going to change. So we need actually to to encourage those who are going into politics to to think about a different progressive agenda to forge and and that i think is is where we put basic income and and see it as a necessary aspect of this new income distribution system it will enhance freedom And that is so important.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly where we're up to, isn't it? That the the crisis or the sequential crises that we've had in Australia, we had an extraordinary climate change uh, year in 2019 with drought and fires that lasted months, and we rolled straight into the global pandemic. There are questions that we can ask now that we haven't asked previously, and it's a time for really significant imagination. But before we move on to more of the solutions, we will take a short break, and we'll come back in a minute.
2: Welcome back, listeners. We're still here with Guy Standing. And just before the break, we mapped out, or Guy mapped out very powerfully, some of the challenges that we're facing. Let's shift now to to look in a little bit more detail at basic income and what it might deliver, and how it might provide some of the solutions to those enormous challenges. But Guy, I wanted to go back to a point that you made earlier when you you referred to uh, corporate taxation. You've noted in your writing about basic income that it would not result in a dramatic increase in income taxation. So I'm keen to, to tease out your ideas a little more on how it would be funding. And what kinds of revenue-raising mechanisms or savings that you think can be used to fund basic income? How we can think differently and imaginatively to be able
1: to fund something new? I, I wrote a book which was published last year called "Plunder of the Commons: uh, A Manifesto for Sharing Public Wealth." And in in that book, essentially, I've been saying that the commons. Are a vital part of every society. The commons are what belong to all of us, but belong to nobody. They are our land, our water, our facilities, our social facilities inherited. They're our culture, they're, they're different aspects of, of our resources. And what's been happening uh, historically, and particularly in the last 30 odd years, is that we've seen a plunder of the commons, an enclosure, a privatization, a commodification of many parts uh, of nature. And what I'm arguing in the book is that we need to create a commons fund and essentially with levies on all the incursions into our commons that have been taken illegitimately or otherwise, by commercial interests and making profits from resources that belong to everybody. And if you build a commons fund, you could begin by having a wealth tax, a land value tax, a uh, a carbon tax, and levies on other forms of incursions that have been taking part of our culture. And turning it into private profit making. I think that's perfectly consistent with a market economy. It's perfectly consistent with a more socialized economy. It's consistent with any type of economy. So I don't want it to be labeled one way or the other. And the great idea of a, a commons fund is that it would be analogous to what the Norwegians have done. In their case, the Norwegians when they discovered North Sea oil back in the 1980s, instead of privatizing the oil, they set up a a fund, a national fund, and the royalties all went into that, that fund. And as the fund has grown, it has become the biggest wealth fund in the world. And I often joke with people when I'm talking to students, I said, my advice to all of you is to find a Norwegian partner, and and get together because, in reality, every Norwegian today is a millionaire, and you would, you would do very well. And they have this fund, and what they can do is they distribute the dividends of the fund. So as the fund builds up, the rate of return justifies the payment out of, of money in various forms of social policy. And what I'm proposing is that a commons fund of that type doesn't have to be based on oil. It can be based on levies on all incursions into the commons, including uh, taxes on air, pollution, on billboards, on frequent flying, where all of that is contributing to the ill being of large numbers of people you know and we we need to to do that and the right i'm writing a book at the moment which is very relevant in australia about the blue commons the enormous potential and the way that the the marine systems of the world are being depleted and exploited and turned into private profits when we need to preserve them and we need to tax heavily those who are illegitimately taking from the blue economy so i think thinking along the lines of the commons and how valuable the commons are to the way we live we need uh public waters we need beautiful parks we need libraries we need the social amenities that have been built up by our our predecessors and we've been fortunate to inherit them we need to preserve and use those for everybody not just for individuals who have a bit of money and are able to make profit out of it that is disgusting so we we have to think about uh, a building the capacity to pay out uh, over over time and the alaska permanent fund in a sense uh, was a precursor of what i have in mind there they they put the royalties into a, a permanent fund and distribute to every resident of Alaska each year a dividend from that fund. Unfortunately, the Republican governor recently has raided the fund because he cut income taxes to zero, and he needed to pay for other things, and he's raided the funds, So it's been polluted by politicians. But you can protect against that in constitutional ways. I personally think this is the best way of affording A basic income. But there are other ways as well. I mean, most governments give away billions of dollars, pounds, euros, or whatever in subsidies that go to corporations and rich people. I mean, I did a calculation in Britain that the tax reliefs for the non poor come to about 430 billion pounds a year. Well, of course, if you use that money, you could pay a very, very high basic income uh but but it's it's feasible and that's the key point it's not something that's a pipe dream that is something that uh, society couldn't afford this is this is prejudice and it's usually with regressive intent to protect inequalities that exist we can afford it and and don't let anybody kid us otherwise
2: guy when you're you're talking about the 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 ways in which we can afford it you gave the example of norway which is incredibly powerful, and also Alaska. And I guess we've inherited lots of ways of thinking. One is about the nature of work, one is about the nature of welfare, but the other is about the nature of the nation state. If we are thinking really creatively and imaginatively, do we stay wedded to the idea of the commons as being bounded by the nation state, or do we need to begin to think globally and think about how we can use those mechanisms just not only to provide basic income in relatively wealthy countries, but how we can start to think about global redistribution and global equality and justice.
1: Well, I think the the, the short answer to, to your point is that we need a multi-layered approach, uh, not only global and national, but also at local levels. And I think that Rebuilding the commons and using the resources that are being taken from the commons, uh, t- using those as the basis for a new new structure of, of taxation, if you like, uh, all goes together. I, you're listening to a man who's had a very strange uh, experience over the last twenty years or so, in that I've been privileged or otherwise to have been able to pilot basic income in various countries in other words i've been designing and uh, conducting with others obviously a, a series of of pilots and we've we've the biggest pilot that we've done is in india where we provided over 6000 individuals men women and children with a basic income spread over 18 months and we compared what happened with them with six thousand others similar positions similar villages and so on elsewhere um who were not receiving the basic income now of course if you you're doing that and we had about 100 people working on the project uh helping out uh you're always risking saying here i have believed in this let's put it to the test and Um, made it made absolutely certain that the data were collected independently not by us not by me and uh, analyzed objectively and so on and i i can only tell you that that a basic income in low income countries will have much greater effect in many respects than it would in australia or britain But there'll be similar effects. What's extraordinary is now we have, I don't know, something over 25 uh, pilots that have been conducted in rich, in medium income countries, low income countries. And there are a whole lot more that have been launched this year. And what's extraordinary is although the methodologies have differed, the designs have differed, the sizes have differed, the results are remarkably similar in different types of country different strength of effects and so on but but they're all all consistent with one another and i think that that is is building up a very powerful message that that this can be a transformative policy.
3: Yeah, and I, I think that probably leads us on to the last question that I was going to ask. Um, Guy, you mentioned earlier the work that you did with Massive Attack and I think it was a pretty amazing film clip uh, that I was looking at in the last couple of days. I recommend it to everybody listening. But that brings us back to the messaging and you talked about the importance of developing a new voice and I, I'm really struck by the need for confidence in a new narrative that radical transformation is is the the desirable way forward rather than some sort of regression to to an old fashioned norm. What's your advice for the generation of people who are working on this about how we can shift that narrative politically or in our in our society locally?
1: My first piece of advice is we have to translate the energy into collective action, we have to realize that we will only achieve this transformation if we are all participating in it, in our small or big ways, whatever it might be. And I'm often asked by people who are in the precariat or whatever, they see it, they've read the books or whatever, and they say, what should I do? And I'm, the simple answer is, you've got to do something. You've got to be, be involved. We have no excuse for sitting back. We have no excuse for passivity. We have a genuine crisis, and it's not going to be cured by the arrival of this vaccine or the arrival of Biden or whatever. It's a a crusade we have to be on, and it's a crusade that has to marry Interests with the ecology with the way we live. Let's have a slow time movement. Let's have a slow food movement. Let's have a revive the commons movement, a charter for the commons, a way of thinking that says the values of work and leisure have to be triumphant over the dictates of labor and consumption. We have to have a new way of articulating a progressive vision of a good society, not go back to the tired rituals of the 20th century. They were, a hundred years ago, they were fantastic. They were transformative in a different way, in a different era. But we're not in that era today. We're in the 21st century with a precariat that's growing, with a class structure which has a disgusting plutocracy at the top, who've billionaires who've been making billions during this pandemic, uh, while millions others have been losing practically everything. We need a transformation, and we need a sense of anger, and we need a sense of passion, and, and that I think is what some people are showing. And and I will say to them, go for it, absolutely go for it, but don't treat it as an ego, narcissistic uh, way of advancing yourself. You've got to be part of the commons. Let's revive the sense of being a commoner and commoning. Uh, That's the essence of what I'm trying to write about these days, because the sense of commoning, the sharing, the participating, the collaborative efforts of reciprocity and empathy and compassion, these were all values disparaged by the neoliberals in the 1980s, 1990s, and way up to now. But I believe there's that energy out there that that is crystallizing and, and, you know, all power to them. Guy Standing,
2: this has been a a fantastic conversation. I think both Anna Greta and I would like to continue it for much, much longer, Um, but we need to draw it to a close. You have given us incredible food for thought. You've given us a rallying cry. And I think most importantly, you've given us a sense of optimism about how we can transform the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, Anna Greta, I I feel as though my head is spinning yet again after that incredible conversation with with Guy. It's hard to know where to start. What was your big takeaway from from that conversation? If you can choose just one. Yeah,
3: no, it's a really easy question. (laughs) One takeaway (laughs) message from all of that
2: discussion. Um,
3: An extraordinarily rich uh, reframing. And I, I think that's That's some of the extraordinary inspiration for me out of the the series that we've done so far and the people we've spoken to, is that it's a great time, it's an extraordinary time to reimagine, that we can ask questions about what work might mean, that it's a very good time to redefine the essence of work and to think deeply about the role that that plays in our society. I'm struck by this concept of the commons and I think that's probably really important in terms of addressing uh, our ecological and environmental challenges of climate change. I wonder how that would actually work out. And I'm again struck by this the the tensions between local and national and uh, and global action and the the real enthusiasm that that we could hear from Guy Standing about local participation and getting people really motivated to be involved in the decision makings in their community.
2: Yeah, there was there was a lot to take away from that. I, I think I'm. Possibly one of the few people listening that got really, really excited by the fact that Guy said he has the original beverage report in his possession. Um, But putting aside my rather social policy geek tendencies, (laughs) um, I I think I was really interested to hear Guy talking, as did Mark and Tim. Um, And I think John raised this as well in our very first pod, with John Quiggan, um, about, as you say, the local, the national and the global. And I don't think these things are necessarily intention. I think this is one of the really interesting things from from what Guy was saying, that we can see ways of transforming the way we think that kind of bring these things into harmony. And so you can start to see how the local, the national and the global can fit together in a way that's complementary if we transform the way we think about these things and, and kind of pull out, pull away some of those tensions and look for the, the synergies and the way that we can, um, make things work in a much more kind of ha- harmonious way. But I think what Guy spoke about to me that, that I really take away from this is the way we can take, uh, take out of the equation tensions between human progress and the environment or, ecological protection. You no know, and I think what he's talking about and the way he thinks about the transformation of this not just societies but of the world really allows us to bring people and the environment and the planet into harmony. Mm. And I think that's such an important and optimistic message at mm. the moment.
3: No, absolutely. I mean, I'm still struck by Tim Hollow's framing last time about the extractionary nature of capitalism, of actually digging stuff up and selling it, and uh, and the, the follow on effects to then the commoditization of human work and human existence. And I think the framework of the giant, the eight giants that the Guy Standing gives us, shows us the consequences of that commoditization, both of the natural environment around us and of the humans on which the uh, that I guess are habit- habitating on the planet and then he's also given us the framework whereby we can solve that equation and we can and that that again as we perhaps suspected that really thinking deeply about things like work and economic structures really give us some re- extraordinary and inspirational options
2: so much comes back to rethinking the nature of work to rethinking the way we spend our time and what we value. And I think that has been sometimes an explicit but consistently an underlying theme of these conversations. And if we start to think differently about work and income generation and consumption, then that really opens the way to think in Completely transformative and very creative ways. So that is really exciting.
3: Absolutely, looking forward to the next episode. So that brings us to the end of our extraordinary conversation today on the universal basic income, uh, and the advantages that that model poses for us in terms of contending with issues of inequality and insecurity, uh, life in the precariat, and of the the existential threat of ecological collapse and climate change. Actually, Sharon, next week, have you got something lined up for us to to discuss next week?
2: I have got something lined up for us next next week that I think follows on from Guy's discussion around some of those giants that we need to slay very, very nicely. Should we reveal that at the moment? Or perhaps we should keep it as a surprise, just so people keep listening, keep wondering what comes next and and keep tuning into these amazing conversations that we've got the privilege of having.
3: Fantastic. Well, I'll look forward to speaking with you again next week on on whatever it is we're going to be
2: speaking about. Sounds great. <laughs> we really do have something lined up, we people, do. so we come do. back again. Yep. Excellent. <laughs> but also do remember to reach out to us. You can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. You can reach us on email. At podcast at policyforum.net. But of course, the best way to, to contact us and to stay in touch and to engage in these discussions is to join our Facebook group. If you just type pod into the search bar, you'll find us there. And please don't forget to leave a review. We love getting reviews. We particularly like getting really nice reviews, but we also take on board the ones that suggest different ways of doing things. And do subscribe to us. You can find us on Acast, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. So reach out and connect with us and do join us for the next episode of what is turning out to be an amazing series, Um, not just on uh, a wellbeing economy, but on how we transform this world in these troubled times. Fantastic.
3: Looking forward to next week.
2: Bye-bye from me for now.